come up with my insight. I think that the, the line between docs and apps is artificial. And you have to think about the barrier. Like, what has kept that from happening? You can't, it's very rare that an insight is really important and nobody thought of it. Right. So you have to think about what is that structural thing that kept this from happening? And then you can go after it. Welcome to the Startup Field Guide, where we learn from successful founders of unicorn startups how their companies truly found product market fit. I'm your host, Sandhya Hegde, and today we will be diving into the story of Coda. Coda is a collaborative workspace that brings together teams and tools to create organized workflows in docs. Started in 2014, Coda serves over 80% of the Fortune 100 already, Last valued at $1.4 billion, Coda is now used by over 40,000 teams, including ones at Figma, New York Times, Square, DoorDash, and Toast. Joining us today is Shishir Mehrotra, CEO and co-founder of Coda. Welcome to the field guide, Shishir. Yeah, thanks for having me. You've had this incredible career as a product leader, which you've shared so many learnings with the whole ecosystem on at Microsoft and Google. And I believe you were actually really early on the YouTube team at Google. So before we actually dive into Coda, I'm really curious kind of what your experience was starting the YouTube product and team while you were at Google. Yeah, maybe as just a bit of background. I, I joined Google in 2008, so it was right after the YouTube acquisition. Right. And I was part of the, what you can think of as like the second wave of people that went in past the, the founding team of, of YouTube. Um, but we were pretty early in that journey, and I ended up uh, running the, the YouTube group until about 2014, so pretty wide journey. I, I think the easiest way to describe YouTube in those days is, and people, it, it almost sounds hard to believe, but in 2008, YouTube was seen as a failure. YouTube was seen as we were losing a lot of money, hundreds of millions of dollars a year. We were... Right known for grainy videos of cats doing odd things. We had, we had a big lawsuit from, from Viacom. And it took a while for us to, to work our way through that. I had an old boss that told me that every business goes through three main phases. First, you're a joke, then you're a threat, then you're obvious. And when you're a joke, nobody believes in you. Then you become a right. threat, and everybody has to respond. And you become obvious, and everybody assumes everything you're going to do is going to work, and they work around you. And I like to say I got to work on YouTube through all three phases. Where early days, it was hard to get anybody to pay attention. We were written off not only by the industry, but even by, by the other teams at Google. Gradually, we found momentum. We found our path to profitability. We got the business working. We figured out how to grow the creator ecosystem. And all of a sudden, we looked like a threat, and everybody had a YouTube response. And then we became obvious and all of a sudden it looked like we were the only player in town. Interestingly, the cycle continues, right? So if you think right. about YouTube today, back to threat. And there's now new competitors. So, but it's a, an interesting time to, to go through that journey. What's your take on shorts versus TikTok? Oh, first of all, I give enormous credit, not only to the TikTok team, but before them, I think the real progenitor of that format was actually Snap. And I think that we launched a camera product at YouTube must be like 2010, 2011. And one of the famous features of the camera product was if you, took your, if you took your phone out and you started taking video like this, we would stop recording and make you turn your phone. We thought that it was so silly 
to shoot vertical video, that we should make people turn their phones to shoot it. And I think that as dumb as an in, often great businesses have really simple insights. Right. As silly as that in, insight seems, I think Evan and the Snap team were the first ones to realize, actually, if you let people keep their phone vertical, you can not only build really compelling video, you open up the opportunity for building a scrollable feed. And I think that, I think the format of a scrollable feed is just so obviously superior to something you have to click in and out of that it like immediately took off at Snap. And I think TikTok did a really nice job. Actually, they, I think most people know the history was started as musically and then, and then became right. TikTok. But the, they, did, they did a really good job taking the best parts of that and marrying it with a, a sort of new content ecosystem uh, and really growing it. But it's interesting to me how simple insights can often lead a long way. In terms of the comparison of the product, I, mean, I, I think for the, the main thing I'm proud of the YouTube team for is they, they, didn't, they didn't have too much NIH about it. They didn't, they didn't have this, right. we didn't invent it, so we're not going to do it. They recognized right. Right. that consumers seem to really like the format. And Susan and Neil and team pivoted quickly to, to go after it. I think they've done a nice job. I think it's a good product. And there's obvious value propositions for keeping it in one experience. But yeah, it's, it's very interesting. It's, it, it's look back and, and say, how did we miss vertical video? It just seems, <laughs> it seems crazy. Yeah, yeah I think yeah, like YouTube was the original pioneer for like great content divorced of a social graph, right? So this, in some ways, like it was the era of the pre-TikTok era for just, if I just want to binge on great content, where do I go? Um, and I think it was, it's so wildly successful that it's hard to think of other startups as a threat until they really become very big, right? It's the classic innovator's dilemma. It's interesting. One thing I'd say, we were chatting a little bit before we started the cool about the term product market fit. And I've always had this love-hate relationship with the term product market fit because by the time I left YouTube, we were over a billion users and right. we set this famous goal of getting to a billion hours a day of consumption, which we did hit. And the and yet, if you were to talk, if you were to show up at any of our exec team meetings or retreats or so on, one of our main topics was we did not think we had found true product market fit. And it's interesting how when people use the term, they act like it's binary, like you have right. it or you don't. But actually, that's not quite the way product market fit works. Product market fit is something that you achieve it with one group, but you always want this next group. And for us, we did very well with younger audiences. We did well with teenagers. But we saw, we saw other parts of the video ecosystem that were serving an older demographic. They, Netflix was doing very well at the same time. And so right. from our perspective, we didn't think we had product market fit. So we're constantly working on whatever that next group was, or it might be the next country we were launching in, we didn't have product market fit. So it, was not, it, it, wasn't a, um, it definitely wasn't a binary, like we have it now, and we didn't have it, and now we do. It was a constant right. journey right. on product market right. fit. Yeah, every time innovate on your product, it is a, it's a question of like, how can you further improve uh, the product market fit you already have? Every time the market changes on you, there's a question of, does your product need to respond to uh, where the most attractive part of the market is today as opposed to where it was yesterday? And yeah. I love how thoughtful you have been as a ex-product leader and now CEO about what the product community and ecosystem needs to do to think about this topic. And maybe that kind of brings me to Coda. Like, how did Coda start? It sounds like maybe it was germinating 
during the time you were at YouTube and was a problem you were thinking about even then? I mean, honestly, it's a problem that I've been interested in working on for over 20 years now. So, you know, to my time at Microsoft and even before that. And like I said, I think great companies start with fairly simple observations. And the code observation is a very simple one, is we believe that there is an artificial line between docs and apps. And one way to think about it is if you look at the average company or team, I think the latest stat is the average company has something like 265 different software applications that they purchased, right. The which seems like a lot. But then if you go look and watch what they're doing all day, we did this really interesting study with this company, Glean, that does builds an enterprise search product, um, where we found that the average uh, worker inside a company has 2,000 documents per employee. Mm-hmm. So if you have a 1,000-person company, you probably have 2 million documents. And it takes over 90% of their time spent is in front of documents, not applications. So you spend right. all this money on applications. And yet, if you were to peer over the shoulder of any person, any workplace, what you'd probably find them looking at is a document, a spreadsheet, or a presentation. And that was this really interesting observation is that we pay all this money for apps, and yet the world runs on doc sheets and slides. And a sort of second part of that observation is that those surfaces haven't fundamentally changed in over 40 years now. We have this running joke at the company that if Austin Powers were to pop out of his freezing chamber today, he wouldn't know what clothes to wear or what music to listen to, but he could probably work a document, a spreadsheet, and a presentation because right. the core metaphors were all set by the teams that build WordStar, Harvard Graphics, and, um, and VisiCalc, uh, and they haven't really changed since the 1970s, which is just incredible to us. So that led to our approach where we said, what if we started with a completely new blinking cursor, start from scratch, build a new surface that's built around this idea that this isn't about just digitizing paper and a professor's right. slide and so on, but really about how we run teams and that is really what we're actually building with documents is many applications. And we said, we're going to build an entirely new surface to go to go and do that with the view of being that blinking cursor of choice for this, what we call the next generation of makers. That's, that's how Coda started. I feel like it's like such a daunting company idea to take on because it's so simple. And yet, like you are competing with decades of existing behaviors and assumptions. You're competing with both incumbent companies, two of which you have worked at. I I don't know if you were involved in their enterprise uh, uh, suite at all, but like you're competing both with the Googles and Microsofts of the world, as well as a slew of other startups that are maybe doing like point solutions for these different things. How did you think about what was the po- going to be the positioning? And if you were challenged by any of the folks around you around, okay, why does the world need this? I'm curious, what was the seed of conviction in your mind in terms of, okay, why is this going to be different? Why are we going to be able to like win hearts and minds? Peter Thiel wrote a really good book called Zero to One, where he talked about how a startup is this smallest group of people that you can get together that have a similar view of some idea that everybody else thinks is crazy, but they think is really obvious. And that's definitely what it felt like. The easy Mm -hmm. early days of starting Coda, everybody's, I would give that some version of that set of observations that people would say, I don't understand what's wrong with Office. What's wrong with Google? (laughs) Right. right. Yeah, it's been that way for 50 years. So what's wrong with it? Usually that means it stood the test of time. And so by itself, that isn't enough. It hasn't changed. It's not enough reason to change. And I would tell them about, don't you think it's a little bit odd that you use 
documents in these different ways and like you stretch your applications other way. I'd say, yeah, but they're just used to it. It was right. hard for them to picture any anything different. Um, and so to some extent, we had to build it to show them. And it, it was, because it, it's not a, it, it's not a, uh, there are some products and companies, not many, but there are some products and companies where the concept is enough and you can just say, here's what, right. but imagine pitching YouTube that way. Imagine pitching TikTok that way. It's, right. it's not possible. You have to, you have to build it and show them. To some extent, you build that team that has that shared viewpoint and you wait to prove it to the world. I think in terms of the, the ecosystem, yeah, we have this very interesting e ecosystem because at one extreme, we have documents that have been roughly the same for 50 years. Right. At the other extreme, the way Coda gets used is we get used as a replacement for applications. And people will start with Coda and they'll do their meeting notes and they'll build up their wikis and their team hubs and so on in, in Coda. But gradually what they're doing is they're getting rid of tools that dedicated tools that they had for, for project management or for CRM or for an inventory system or for an invoicing system or for a system to email their customers or so on. And so in some senses, we have this like on one side, very established, long, hasn't changed in a long time set of behaviors and competitors. On the other side, we have this incredibly wide spectrum. I think we've probably been in a bake-off with just about every packaged application right. you can think of, uh, which, is a, which is really interesting. And our positioning for that is very simple. It's an all-in-one product. And so it's the only product where you can do all that in one place in a familiar, a familiar surface. And I think that turns out to really resonate with people. That if you become that tool you reach for, then we earn all these other use cases. We, one of the things at the company is we earn our right to the complicated use cases by winning the simple ones first. And that's what we see teams start with Coda with some very simple ideas. It's like, oh, I just want, you know, one of the things people love about Coda, it looks like a document, but um, one of the simplest innovations is the left-hand side of Coda is a set of pages. And it looks like tabs in a spreadsheet turned sideways. I don't know why spreadsheets have a monopoly on tabs. They thought that was really stupid. Uh, so we just built another product. But it turns out to be like a very easy way to work your way into the product. Oh, it's a document with structure. And then you realize, oh, I can use that for my wiki. I can use that for my project. I can use that for my team. I can use that for an account plan. And then you gradually uncover all the other things you can do in code. And you discover, oh, I have tables in here that are more powerful than many databases. I have all these integrations. I can, I can go and synchronize from over 600 different applications concepts of buttons and automations, and I can now build up these workflows, I can build forms and layouts, and you grad, but you start incredibly simple. And our promise is it's not one product, you won't run out of gas. So cool. I also love the name Coda itself. Just the you, idea. You, you know the history on the name. Yeah, because I've listened to other podcasts you've been on. Uh, now for your uh, listeners, Coda is, it's a, a, the, the, the reason for the name is that it's a doc backwards. Yeah, I love and, it. And it was interesting, yeah. we went through our naming exercise in a Coda doc, it wasn't called Coda at the time. We had a code name for the company. The company was called Krypton at the mm. time. And the, we had 1,200 names on this list. Like we brainstormed, our head of brand had us do a different brainstorm every day for five straight days. It's like one day it was things that represented building blocks. Another day was like interesting sounds. Another day was like interesting acronyms and so on. And Coda ended up on this list. I can't even remember how it ended up on this list. It was like in the middle of the list. And one of the designers picked it up and said, you know, that name is a doc backwards. And he actually made an animation of the name flipping around to be a doc. And then this went from being in the middle of the list to right at the top of the list. And all of a sudden, all of us fell in love with it. Very interesting name. Uh, such, such a simple choice. Obvious in retrospect, right? Yeah. Going all the way back to 2014. So I know you spent 
two years before you actually launched the product and had a GA moment. I'm curious if you go back to that when you first started building. So I have so many questions. One, like how uh, much surface area did you feel like you have to build before you could say, especially given the value prop is all in one, what was the foundational set of use cases that kind of aligned to that all-in-one value prop that you, you felt like, okay, we are ready to like have people outside the team start using this. What was like the alpha private beta stage like for Coda? Yeah, actually just to clarify timeline, we actually didn't launch Coda 1.0 until 2019. So it's about four and a half years in is when we launched Coda 1.0. We launched a lot of things along the way. Right. We did three, what we called alphas, and then we did a large beta in 2017 where we started pulling in more people, but the official first release was in 2019, which sounds like a long time, but it was one of my primary investors is Reed Hoffman, and he has a well-worn saying on, if you're not embarrassed when you launch, then you launched uh, too late. And right. I'd say, even though it took four and a half years, I still had lots of parts of the product <laughs> that felt, felt like we weren't really ready yet. Um, uh, but I'll, I'll go back to the beginning. So we started the company and we made a bunch of cultural decisions early on. Mm -hmm. We made a decision that we'd be a distributed team, which was not, not as in vogue then as it is now, but it right. turned out to be very important for us. But one of the other decisions we made is that uh, we would operate in stealth, which is not a thing I recommend to most companies. And most companies, right. it's better to do your development in public. But in our case, it made sense for a whole bunch of different reasons. Is the, the, we knew the timeline for a true launch was going to be a long time. So doing that all out in the open would be hard. We also didn't have it, like usually you need to be out in public in order to recruit customers. So we didn't need that. It was like Coda is fundamentally a product that basically any team can use. Right. So it just wasn't that necessary to, to need any of that. We had our own networks for recruiting and fundraising. And so we decided to do in stealth, which meant that we controlled the, the first few releases of customers that we worked with. The first one, but we thought, even though we were in stealth, it was very important for us to get customer feedback as early as possible. Even though we didn't launch 1.0 for four and a half years, we launched our very first alpha in about six months. We had our sort of first version out there. And it went to this company called Springful. There's only one customer in, in this first alpha. So this company called Springful is run by a guy named Noam Levinsky, who she's now the chief product officer at Grammarly. Right. And he had, um, they were similarly sized. We were both six people. We both had six people in each of our companies. And we were now using Coda regularly to run things inside of Krypton at the time to run things inside of our company. And so I called him up and said, hey, would you mind giving it a try? I have thick skin. Any feedback is fine. But I'd really love to see how you guys use it and what you use it for and, and so on. And early on, it took pretty well. They were in the product every day. And we had our, our usage chart basically stopped at six. It was like, that's like the highest we could get on any given day was six users. And so we'd watch this chart every day. Okay, we hit six users and now we can go on to the next uh, day. And one day this chart drops to zero. And the, and it was interesting because at first you're like, ah, oh, it's okay. It must be, they're doing something else. And second day it stayed at zero. And I call up Noam and I said, hey, we noticed that this, that your usage tailed off a bit. Or did you guys take a vacation? Are you doing an offsite? I just wanted to check if everything's okay. And he said, yeah, I've been avoiding calling you. And he said, I have good news and bad news. I said, okay, give me, give me the bad news first. He says, well, the bad news is we had a team meeting and we, the team told me that if I made them keep using Krypton, they were all going to quit. I said, well, that's pretty bad news. <laughs> I don't know how to recover that. I said, well, what's the good news? He said, the good news is we really believe in your vision. 
And the team made a list of these are the very specific things we need. Mm -hmm. And once these are achieved, we were happy to, we'll be happy to start again. And you can do them in two weeks. We'll start in two weeks. If it's two months, we'll do two months. If it's two years, we'll do it in two years. But just tell us when you're ready and here's the list right. of things. There are about 30 things on that list. And it was an interesting moment in lots of ways. It's a total gift, right? It was, the, it was a terrible experience. Losing 100% of your user base on one day is like one of those days you go home and question what you're doing. Uh, the level of feedback was really good. All the ideas on the list were really good. And the sort of belief in the vision was really good. And so that, that was what this first one looked like. Interestingly, we did not build those 30 things. And there was a lot of pressure too. There, there was a lot of discussion about, like I said, the word gift. It felt like a gift. It's like this really right. thoughtful product team has given us a roadmap. We'll just do these things. But what we knew was that they were being exposed to this tiny part of the product. That the, At the time, Coda was mostly about tables. So we actually built the, the, the structured part of Coda first. The heart of the Coda engine is a, is a, uh, a structured database. And we hadn't built the rest of the product. There was no document. There was no forms and layouts. There was no equivalent of applications and presentations and so on. And we knew that if we overfit at this period, right. we would miss what the real mark of the product was. So it's interesting. We, we actually ended up coming. I watched that list carefully. And it probably took us all of the next two or three years before we actually made it through Noam's team's list because right. we were busy building out the rest of what we were trying to get built. I'd say uh, in terms of, and that's maybe you'll answer a little bit of your question on surface area, Code is a particularly challenging product that way. It is a product where the, the because the promise is an all-in-one product, you have to meet this minimum bar. And because the things we're replacing are so familiar, you have this interesting challenge at every step of we, we one of our four main values of the company is right versus familiar. And I think we've become very good at taking something and saying, are we going to do it the exact same way or different? When are we going to purposely pick different? How are we going to educate people on that? And so it meant like every piece of design was had to be very carefully thought out. And what it led to was it almost feels like when you're building Coda, it feels like, I, I make the analogy to, it feels like playing music, where if you miss a couple notes, everything kind of feels wrong. Mm. It's not something, and like the whole rest of it can be fine, but if you just miss one or two notes in the middle, the whole thing just doesn't feel quite accurate. And it, that's what it felt like. It felt like we were building this product and it was like 99% of it works. But this one thing, this the cursor doesn't behave the right way in this one situation, or the page lays out a little bit funny in this one case, or whatever it might be, would just make the whole thing feel wrong. Right. And people would give up and so you'd have to you'd have to go back to it. And so that's what it took a long time. It took a long time to both build up to those fundamental expectations and build the innovation we want to build and get them to match and get them to feel like one one cohesive product. And I wouldn't say we had that feel of product market fit until probably after our first beta. So it's probably three, three and a half years in when, and for us, the definition was very simple. It was, we feel product market fit when the product spreads. And so that mm -hmm. because it's a team-based product, you know that you're finding fit when you see the product spread, not only to walk through one team, but when somebody from that team picks it up into another team and you right. see the product spread that way. And we, so we started seeing that happen then. And that was really what sort of made us start feeling like, okay, that's, we're really on to something. But it was a hard period leading up to it. Yeah, no, I think the, the really, I think, beautiful thing about what you said there that translates to any product, even if it's not a collaboration-based product, is 
that the heart of having found PMF as your customer is your evangelist, as opposed to we set out to do this workflow and we have done it. And there are some people now using us for this workflow. That's not quite enough, right? Like you need evangelism. In your case, you need evangelism for the product to be used at all, right? Because it's a bottom-up, product-led, like collaboration platform. Right. But even if that were not the case, like the best indicator that you have product market fit, I think is not so much like what's uh, being clicked on in a survey, but how much your existing customers are trying to tell other people about the experience they had. I think that's always a good bar to aim for. for. For your listeners who are interested in learning more on this topic, there's actually a really thoughtful template on this in our gallery. So Rahul Bora, who is the founder of Superhuman, the, the email application, he ended up writing this piece I really liked. And, and Rahul and I have known each other for years, and so we went back and forth on it. And it has this really simple idea that you can measure product market fit through something called a disappointment score. And it's a very simple idea is that you ask your users, how disappointed would you be if you could no longer use the product? And the basically the benchmark, you can say very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, or not disappointed. And the benchmark is that I believe he puts a benchmark at 40%. If you can get to 40% yeah. of your audience saying very disappointed, then, you're, then you've achieved product market fit. The interesting thing about it is if you think of, we would have all these debates about the other alternative way people think about product market fit is to a net promoter score, which is really an advocacy to see how likely yeah. you to recommend the product. And it's right. interesting that those two dimensions, maybe as a little bit of an aside, I, you know, over the years, we found that Superhuman and Coda, we, Superhuman is a couple years older than us, but we both came to market in similar ways, both started in stealth, both gradually worked up to our big first release. And interestingly, his product Superhuman and Coda had nearly opposite challenges. We had, even from the start, we had really high disappointment scores, but initially low net promoter scores. Mm. And his was the opposite. They had really high net promoter scores, but really disappointment scores. And you can think about why. Right? For Superhuman, uh, the alternative, if you ask somebody how disappointed would you be if you can use Superhuman, the alternative is Gmail. And it wasn't like, you'd be pretty disappointed. I'm a big Superhuman user. I really love Superhuman. Well, there's, a, there's an alternative product that you can switch to. Right. But on the other hand, like, people are very quick to say, I would totally recommend it. I think it's really good. For us, it was the other way around. Was that the disappointment scores were sky high. Because once you start using Coda, you really can't use anything else. Our mm -hmm. approach is so unique relative to any other product. You'd have to use 10 products to replace it. It's very hard to, for people to go back. But on the other hand, it requires change management. It's a different way of working. And so people would say, would I recommend this? If you're up to the challenge to go right. and change how your team works, and absolutely I recommend it, how disappointed would you be if you couldn't use it anymore? Most of our customers would say devastating. Like it's, we have incredibly low churn as a company because it's very hard once you see the world in the code away, like it's very hard to see it any other way. And it's an interesting way to think about product market fit. I had this really interesting conversation with, oh, I'm going to forget his name now, but the, the inventor of Net Promoter Score from Bain, Mm -hmm. And he, I'll have to find it for you. And we were talking about this dynamic. And it was very interesting because the, what he was saying is, so I didn't know Net Promoter Score was an invented thing, but they've invented it, built a whole practice around it. Right. And they do all these studies for people. And I mentioned this idea that, you know, which is better, Net Promoter Score or Disappointment Score. Right. And what he said was really interesting. He said, he thinks it's an indication of maturity of market. So mm -hmm. the more mature your market is, the more you need Net Promoter Score. The reason is simple. The more mature your market is, the more likely it is that, that the products are similar. And so if you go ask in the car market, for example, 
for disappointment scores for Mercedes, people will say, how disappointed would you be if you couldn't have a Mercedes? They would say, I'd be disappointed, but like BMW is like right next door. And I'll figure it out. But you'll still get high enough promoter scores. The people right. will say, I, I love my Mercedes. I'd be happy to recommend it. And the, uh, the view is that that goods become more and more equivalent and that promoter score becomes more important. But I think actually in early days, one of the reasons disappointment score is such a great signal is because your product is likely to be quite differentiated. So the, your first indicator may actually come out of disappointment scores before it comes out of net promoter scores. Maybe just for the science of product market fit. And it's a really good template Rahul built on, on, on how to do it. And you can go find it in the Coda Gallery. Right. Yeah, no, I, I love it. And I think it highlights how important an understanding of human psychology is when you are trying to build something new, yeah. <laughs> which I think is not something like as in VC or as a technical founder, often you think about a lot, like you don't go out of your way to understand human psychology and put words to it. But I think some of the best product people I know have this really great intuition for human psychology and understand outside of the problem their product solves, like how does it affect your customer's identity, their status, their joy, their mental emotions. And since you talk a lot about kind of product rituals, I wanted to maybe segue a little bit into that and, and then circle back to uh, the Coda journey. How do you uh, help your product dog, especially given that you have such, you started the company with such a clear, big, long-term vision. How do you uh, help your product or kind of keep that DNA in the company as you get bigger and you have more kind of product owners for different parts of the company? I'm curious how you think about that. Is there a specific playbook you are following that works for Coda or have you had to make it up as you go? So I think, although some of your listeners may not, this is a topic that I really enjoy and I've become a student of. I'm actually writing a book on this called Rituals of Great Teams. And if people want to read, I've been publishing a chapter at a time at RitualsofGreatTeams.com. So you can, go take a, you can go take a look. And it's a fairly simple idea that as we form our teams, we build, we build two products of the company. We build one for our customers. We build one for our employees. The one we build for our employees, we call that culture. And if you ask somebody to define culture, they will often describe it in terms of ritual. These are things we do. There's ways we do things. Right. But they're actually kind of mirrors. That the, the way we operate isn't just an operating system. It's a mirror of our culture. So the second product we built, it, the product to build the product, is one that I've become a big student of. And obviously, it's very relevant to Coda because Coda becomes a tool for people's rituals quite commonly. And so every team has different rituals for this book I've now interviewed over a thousand different companies. I picked out a hundred top rituals and I put them in these buckets together. And you can go learn about everything from how people do strategy and planning, how they do decision-making, how they run meetings, how they onboard employees, how they hire employees, how they, there's all sorts of different things that people do to um, build and manage a culture. For us, I think there are a few things that are maybe somewhat unique to us and based on how the type of product we're building. And, uh, maybe I'll just give a couple different examples. One is our decision-making culture. And I, it just turns out that when you're building a product like Coda, to use a term that uh, Jeff Bezos made pretty famous, we have a lot more one-way doors than two-way doors. Right. There's, there's just a lot of cases of when we're building something where, you know, it, it, this wasn't as true at YouTube. At YouTube, it was, it was fairly 
There was definitely um, a lot of one-way doors, mostly because it's a marketplace and an, and an ecosystem. So it leads to, once people depend on you one way, it's hard to change. But overall, that market changes fast enough that you could make a decision and you could change it. Right. In Coda, it's just harder. People get used to it a certain way. The docs get built a certain way. It's hard to go right. change, change things out. Not impossible, but harder. And so it's important that you get choices right in the first place. We've put a lot of attention to our decision-making processes. Yeah, there's a couple different things we do that are unique there. And then I'll tell you about an innovation ritual as well that I think is interesting. Probably the most important thing is that in our core decision-making, we do a thing called Dorian Pulse. So it's, it's rare to have a decision-making or basically any meeting at Coda and not have what we call Dorian Pulse. So that usually you would, in most cultures, you would have a write-up or a slide deck or so on. People would add comments to it and then you run through the comments. Or maybe you just let somebody present the slides and you blurt out questions and you use that as a way to try to drive decisions in a Socratic kind of method. I, I was at a dinner with a set of founders and one of them mentioned that it feels like the most important decisions in our company are made in the right hundred pixels of a Google Doc. Like that can't possibly be the best way to do it. And so what we do at Coda is it's called Dorian Pulse. At the bottom of every write-up, there's a Dory, which is a place where everybody adds questions and you vote them up and down. It's named after the fish who asks all the questions. And that's a way to make sure we get everybody's questions out, right. focus on the most important ones. And then the most important thing we do is a thing called Pulse, where everybody is supposed to write their response to the write-up. So you say, hey, we need to make a decision. Are we doing it this way or that way? Are we going to hire this person? Are we going to buy this company? Are we going to launch this product? Whatever it might be. And everybody writes their viewpoint, often with score, saying, I agree one, I agree five, or I disagree one, or whatever it might be. And the way we do it is we hide everybody else's responses until you're done writing. And so we try to remove the groupthink of this process. And that turns out to be really critical for making good decisions. Because I think in most cases, decision-making cultures are built around the loudest voice. And so you can right. use the loudest voice or the most senior voice or so on. And it's not to say that like my voice doesn't matter, but the best ideas in the company often don't come from me. And the gotchas of what happens when this happens and so on, like I'll miss many of them. And so if you're right. building a company with a lot of critical decisions, which I think actually ends up being most companies, right. I think having a clear decision-making process is really important. So that's one, one ritual I'd say. The other one is totally different extreme is how we do hackathons. And you, maybe it's a little bit of a story there. At YouTube, we used to do something called Innovation Week. So we take a week, a year, and we do a hackathon. And... Mm -hmm. Actually, we used to do it twice a year, and then gradually we turned it into once a year, and eventually I killed the whole thing. And the reason was, it actually turned out to be perversely bad for the team. And we would do these hackathons and these innovation weeks, and inevitably, some team would pick up a project that they were trying to get some other team to do. <laughs> right. Say, hey, you guys don't, you know, aren't doing this thing, or you think it's a bad idea, or let me just show you. And I'm just going right. to build it. I get a week to build it. And I'll convince you. Know, the, you. <laughs> I'm going to convince you, right? Um, actually, one of one of my anyways, the, the vertical video was one was a, was one of the projects done in one of these things. So it's back Whoa. to the very start of our conversation. But the um, but anyways, they you know we get to the end of the week, everybody present their ideas, and you have all this fight. And it's like, wait, we told you that's a bad idea. We own that piece of code. We think that's a bad idea. Right. Here's why: we're not shipping your thing. And because the whole thing was built around that, it all felt like a failure. And so we started doing these less and less. And so at Coda, we were a few months in, and one of the engineers who came from Facebook, he said, hey, we should do a hackathon. And I said, I don't know. I gave him the stories. I, I don't actually think it's that positive. And he says, oh, that's silly. That's just misconstructed hackathon. He said, I have an idea. How is 
let's do it as an anti-hackathon. I said, what does that mean? And he said, let's set a simple rule. We're going to do a hackathon, but you're not allowed to ship anything we make. And it's going to be the first anti-ship, anti-hackathon. I was like, okay, we'll give it a try. And we're just, I think we're about to hold next week, actually, is our next hackathon. We do it three or four times a year now. I think it's hackathon 21 or 22 for us. And I'd say easily 75% of the best ideas in code have come out of hackathon. The vast majority of them shipped months or years after that first hackathon. And so one of our values here is great ideas take time to grow. And it's when you're building something like Coda, and you, it's really important you get all the little elements of something right, I think it's really critical that you build into your culture space for an idea to, to form. And the initial one may not be that great. One of my favorite examples is Coda the feature called Buttons. Buttons went through, I think, five hackathons before it turned into a shippable feature. And only a hackathon three did we even come up with the name button, which seems like really obvious in retrospect. We had all sorts of other crazy ways to describe this thing we were trying to do that takes action from a doc, or it could send an email, or it could create a row somewhere, or it could create a, an order or a, an invoice or so on. And at some point, somebody said, normal people say, if I press this thing, it does exactly one action, we call that a button. Why don't we call it a button and work backwards? But it was like hackathon the third time we went after it that we actually got to that. And it was the fifth time before we could ship it. I think there's a lot of great ideas like that take time. But those are a couple of the rituals that being really good at decision making in the moment is really critical, but also giving space for open-ended innovation without the pressure of this needs to immediately present it to, to, to customers, I think has become a key part of how we operate. So you just also launched Coda 4.0. Congratulations. I'm curious, obviously, there must have been a lot of conversation about how to incorporate AI and LLM for the past couple years. I'm very curious, what was that process like at Coda? And what was your original thesis around the right way to leverage AI for your customer base? And curious whether it's playing out the way you thought it would. Yeah, it's interesting. We caught the AI bug, similar to everyone else, in our in a slightly different way. In about a year ago now, November of 22, somebody shipped a OpenAI pack in Coda. One of the unique things about Coda is that anybody can build uh, extension of Coda. We call those packs. The vast majority of them are used for integrations between Coda and some other system. At this point, there's about 600 of them that have been developed by the community and shipped out to the world. There's thousands more that have been built inside companies as well, because you can build it for private use as well. So anyway, somebody built a pack for OpenAI and turned it into a set of function calls that you could then use as building blocks in Coda and put them in a table or put it in the Coda canvas or so on and go go and ask AI to do anything for you. Immediately became the number one most used pack in Coda. This is before ChatGPT shipped. This is before most people had to realize what, how powerful the LLM models that we're about to see really were. Right. And honestly caught us a little bit by surprise too. At the time, I felt like a important thing, but not a the important thing. And but we saw the excitement. I set aside a team to go work specifically on AI. And they started working away and finding what are the right ways to blend this into the product and make it really feel like a core building block of Coda. And, and we started getting feedback on what people did with it. And we learned something, I, we started something pretty interesting. I think the, first of all, everyone's in, in impression of AI quickly got shaped by ChatGPT. It was, right. it just felt like such a 
magically different experience. It sounds like I've been working on AI for almost 30 years now, and YouTube is run by hundreds of AI systems. Right. But the idea of taking these AI systems and making them feel human, something we can chat with, just felt really different, felt really new. But there were a few things that clearly ChatGPT couldn't do. And the most important one, and everybody wanted, ChatGPT felt like this person who had read the entire internet and was like this encyclopedia of knowledge. And you could ask anything uh, of this sort of hypothetical person. But as people started, thought about it coming to the workplace, they really, there were a few expectations that were not met there. Probably the most important of which was you expect this thing to not only have read the internet, you expect it to have read your actual data, what happened in your company. You also expect it to be present in your work surface. It, it being a place you go and then come back to wasn't really the experience people wanted. We were watching people copy and paste out of code in a chat GPT and back, and that didn't seem quite right. right. But probably the most, and then probably the most important thing is I want this thing to actually produce productivity for me. I want it to not just answer questions. I want it to do stuff for me. And it turned out that all of those kind of led to Coda. In terms of understanding your work, we have, at this point, one of the most connected document surfaces on the planet. So over 600 different integrations, everything from Salesforce to Slack to Figma to Miro to Jira to all sorts of different products that you can blend into your code experience, which turns out to be, from an AI perspective, incredibly useful because not, this now knows everything about, about, about your work. We're also a heavily engaged surface. Our average users are active five out of seven days a week in Coda. And finally, we're an action engine. And right. because you can use buttons and automations and so on in Coda, you know, I think last year we did 4 billion tasks. We automated 4 billion tasks for, for our users. So there's a lot of scale that can be applied to it. And so we basically build our AI system while we launched Coda 4.0 with those insights in mind. It's a, first off, it's a knowledge assistance. It looks and feels like ChatGPT in your doc, but it happens to understand everything about your work. So you can go ask it questions about your calendar, about your orders, about your email, and it'll actually respond to you with things that are permission aware and specific to you. Secondly, it's a writing assistant. So as you're working, it's sitting next to you. It can go finish your sentences. It can go and correct your grammar. One of the favorite uses we see is take you do a page of write-up and you can just say, go correct it. And it'll go and act like a collaborator and go add comments and suggestion changes throughout it. And then finally, it's a task assistant. And we basically built it into every building block. So you can go and build AI-powered buttons and AI-powered automations and so on. And you can go and have this thing actually do things for you at scale. So we, as an example, we are talking to a customer that took Coda and uses it to rebuild his entire CRM system in Coda. Leads come into this table. They get scored by AI. He goes through and triages them. Then AI goes and writes a draft reach out email to each person. He can go and edit. Then a button gets hit that gets automatically triggered and goes and sends it out to everybody. The responses get cataloged. Every step of this is some mix of traditional code building block, AI building block, code building right. block, AI building block. And that that blend together leads to a really powerful experience. And uh, I'm curious, what would be your advice for new startup founders just getting started in this broad enterprise productivity space? What, were, what are your takeaways on like how to figure out if you have picked a good problem to work on? Well, what's the right framework to think about it? Because I feel enterprise productivity is this is like unlimited canvas, lots of opportunity because the way we work is so painful with so many inefficiencies. And yet it's very daunting. What you've done with Coda is just so impressive and took so much in resources and knowledge and thought to be able to just get something right into the market. 
So I'm curious, what, what would be your uh, advice to founders thinking about opportunities in enterprise productivity today, especially with the you know new opportunities made available by AI? It's the thing I'd say we talked a little bit about earlier is I think great companies are built on really simple insights. Right. And so yeah, your observation, think about your observation, hone it really down. To, this is what we think is the assumption that everybody else has made right. that we view slightly differently. And then you got to go and look at that as hard as you can and say, how true is this? Is it oftentimes people ask the question, is it a feature or is it a product? Right. Like why have people not done that? And when you can, especially when we were starting Coda, people would first say, they'd say, why do you want to build Office, Google Docs, doesn't seem like there's anything wrong. <laughs> and I'd say, no, we think there's a better way. And they'd say, oh, and then they'd rattle off their ideas. And the number of times I got suggestions on, oh yeah, you're right. I really wish somebody built Office that had different line spacing or used this font that I didn't, <laughs> I don't have access. Yeah, I don't think you can build a business around that. I think those right. are, if Microsoft hasn't done that yet, there's, it's probably just a matter of time. And right. you can't really, you can't really go and build a whole new product on that. You got to go take your insight and say, first off, is it true? Insight's not true. You got a big problem. And then what has the barrier been? Like what is, what has kept people from being able to do this? So in, in our case, I think the biggest barrier to innovation in the document space was file format. Like it, it turned out that if you go look at the history of documents, I think the best innovator in the, especially late nineties, early two thousands was actually Apple. They built numbers, pages, and keynote and all three were fundamentally a little bit different from Word, Excel, and PowerPoint, and none of them really took off. And the reason was really simple. If I built, if I built something in Numbers or in Keynote or so on, and I send it to a friend, they have to have Numbers, Keynote, so on. They have to have a Mac, which at the time wasn't that popular. And that just meant that these products couldn't survive. You needed this incredible network effect, and file formats turned, to, turned out to be real lock-in. And so even when Google Docs shipped, being able to export and import from Word, Excel, and PowerPoint was really important. Full fidelity to be able to do it. And interestingly, that I think has completely changed. In a world of web-based tools, and there is no client, there's no download, there's no, you don't need any of that anymore. And so it gives us an opportunity to innovate. And so in my mind, why has this market not changed? To come up with my insight, I think that the, the line between docs and apps is artificial. And you have to think about the barrier. Like what has kept that from happening? You can't, it's very rare that an insight is really important and nobody thought of it. Right. So you right. have to think about what is that structural thing that kept this from happening? And then you can go after it. And in some cases, structural thing is not that big a deal and you better move really fast like before everybody else figures it out. <laughs> right. In some cases, it's a really big deal and you better be right. And it's the, and I think our case was the latter. So like the, right. It was hard to do with part of the reason. Um, you know, sometimes it's a scientific breakthrough. Sometimes it's, there's lots of reasons why something hasn't happened yet. But I would say generally starts with a really simple insight and then it grows from there. Makes sense. So Shashi, thank you so much for joining us on the Startup Feed Guide. This was incredibly valuable uh, and I enjoyed listening to it so much. Thank you for coming. All right, thank you. You've been listening to the Startup Field Guide with Sandhya, an unusual ventures podcast. Stay connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you liked what you heard, please rate our show and help us reach more aspiring founders with lessons on how to find product market fit. Thanks for listening. Until next time.